y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Back on In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episodes 273 and 274, I presented both my biography of singer Unime Carlisle and all my adventures trying to track down the obscure bits of information of this largely forgotten singer, songwriter, and musician. The one other personality that figured prominently in Miss Carlisle's life besides Fats Waller was lawyer, music publisher, and songwriter Barney Young. This past summer, I got in touch with Barney Young's nephew, Charlie Young, who had a small treasure trove of Uname-related materials in his possession. We finally got a chance to meet in person just before Christmas time, where in addition to going through his archives, also conducted an interview together, we attempting to get a better picture of both Barney Young and Unime Carlisle's short time on this earth. One side note that once I got back home to Kentucky, I realized I still had more questions for Charlie Young, and so some of the interview is conducted over the phone as well. There's a little golden rule I learned in school. Don't be a fool. Keep cool, keep cool. I'm uh, Charlie Young. I was a practicing ophthalmologist for many years. Uh, I've been up uh, when I was in New York City practicing. I was uh, director of ophthalmology at NYU's downtown hospital. And then I practiced in Arkansas for 10 years and uh, then went back and taught for a while where I had uh, done my training at, in New Orleans at Oxner Clinic. Uh, and then ended up my career here in Florida um, at the uh, Veterans Administration in Orlando. And now I'm retired and uh, doing stuff that I always thought maybe I'd get around to one day. So that dream does really come true eventually? It, it sure can. Okay. So I think the story starts with your uncle. Uh, you want to tell folks who was Barney Young? Barney um, grew up in Lawrence, Massachusetts, my dad's brother. He went to uh, college and then law school at Harvard, uh, graduated Honor Society with a law degree. And shortly after, um, I guess he graduated, he decided that the best use of that law degree would be to uh, put it to use in the music business. He uh, shortly started to uh, develop some companies uh, uh, on his own and then eventually uh, started buying up smaller companies to develop uh, that interest of his. Now he was kind of a musician himself, right? Well, he, he certainly had been trained in, I guess, uh, piano and violin, and he did like to write songs, uh, so he was a musician himself. What are your memories of him as 
of course, he passed away when, like, in the late 60s, right? Right. Yeah, I was, uh, I just turned 17 when he died in January of 1969. He was 58, I believe, at that time. Certainly growing up, he lived in Manhattan, I lived in Manhattan. Uh, we would get together with him and my grandmother, his mom and my dad's mom, quite often, uh, almost weekly, certainly several times a month, generally on the weekends. We'd all go out to dinner together, sometimes in New Jersey, sometimes just or someplace in Manhattan. So we, I sort of got weekly reports as to what was going on with his business at the time. Early on, that was still in the music business that he was involved in. And then later, uh, he became involved in uh, kind of international trade, mainly in Africa. What did he trade in Africa? Commodities. Uh, he was looking into uh, oil, gold mining, sure. but also fishing industries off the coast there, getting licenses for that. Um, but uh, unfortunately, you know, he died very suddenly from a heart attack, um, and that business was just beginning to take off. So it was never truly developed, and the music business was just going into its final days at the same time. Mm -hmm. So he didn't mind talking about his dealings of the music industry. I know like some people, when they, you know, they clock out, they clock out. They don't want to answer questions, but he was free with that information? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, there were certainly a bunch of different stories as to uh, how he would uh, be connected with um, composers. I think one of my favorite ones was that uh, at his office uh, when he was in the music industry, which is in kind of midtown on Broadway, um, there would be several companies, several different um, music publishers, which was his main field, uh, in the same building and uh, people would come in to sell him a song and uh, he'd have them you know sign a contract and he said you know he'd find out later that day that they'd gone down the hall and sold the same song again and again and again to the other music company owners <laughs> so i assume that would end in lawsuits yes it did that's where his law degree came in handy <laughs> i mean how do you prove like who got the song first or well um you uh, you know you'd certainly see if you had your contract signed. Um, you know beyond that, I you know honestly can't tell you how he sorted out with the people on his floor building or neighbors in town. You know clearly, whoever had that contract date, they they would certainly come in early. But there were times where he said they would sell it again the same day to someone else, and that that would create problems. Right. I think I'd almost put like a timestamp on it. It was at seven o'clock or whatever. Yeah, and unfortunately, I'll say all the contracts that I've seen, none of them have time dates on them. <laughs> you had told me when we were corresponding about some of the things that musicians expected their music publisher to come up with. Now you said your uncle didn't partake in this, but sometimes they, uh, some of the publishers would provide drugs. Oh yeah, sure. Um, I mean, the music industry was. Uh, filled with um, drug abuse or use at the time. Um, you know, one of the people that uh, he managed for a bit and published was uh, uh, Milton Mesro or Mez Mesro. Sure. And uh, Mesro was known and uh, actually was incarcerated at least once, maybe more than once, for selling uh, grass, which People at the time also nicknamed Mez. Do you have any Mez? They would say, because <laughs> uh, he was so well known for 
pushing, using, and uh, uh, the material himself in, in addition to being a musician and songwriter. And Barney, you know, said to me, I wouldn't deal with drugs with them, but other things which they were interested in was uh, some pornography, which, really? you know, there would be some availability for that. Huh. Uh, playing cards were very popular at the uh, yeah. time that had uh, nudie pictures on them. Uh -huh. uh, most of it was very soft from some of the things that I had seen compared to today's porn, but right. still some of it was relatively hardcore. So he was willing to uh, dish out some of those playing cards and things like that as a little something on the side as an extra benefit for for doing business with them. But also condoms was a big part of the industry that people were always you know happy to take a handful of condoms when they went to his office uh, if he didn't have any of that mess that he was willing to give them. Right. <laughs> about some of the artists he represented besides the one we're going to talk about. I actually made a list of some of them because of course he, he was uh, particularly fond of uh, Unime Carlisle mm -hmm. and uh, she was uh, somebody who had stayed with him for uh, the course of maybe almost 20 years uh, that they had a relationship together and he managed her and uh, they even wrote songs together but I put a list here of some of the more famous people that he had one or more songs he had contracted with them for, and usually they would come in, do a contract. Some of them are handwritten. They say, you know, you promise that you will go down to Columbia and record this within the next week, and, you know, here's your 50 bucks or whatever for, yeah. for doing this at this time, and they would sign a paper, you know, because he, he just... It was hard getting these people to actually produce the material they were supposed to do a lot of the time. Um, but uh, Frank Grillo, which was who was Machito, that mm -hmm. was the father of um, the Afro-Cuban music. Buster Harding, Artie Shaw. Artie Shaw, we had a, a he had maybe. 30 songs, they even, I think, formed a company together just for the Artie Shaw songs. Mm -hmm. uh, Ray Conniff, Chico O'Farrell, uh, Roy Eldridge, Will Hudson, Leroy Stuff Smith. A nickel here, a nickel there, won't make him a millionaire, but he's happy because he hasn't got to worry or care. Sam, Sam, the best woman can't lose. Pat Dameron, Nora Morales, Perry Bradford, Con Conrad, Lionel Hampton, Jimmy Lunsford, Cy Oliver, Leo Wood, Fat Swaller. All of these people, he had at least one, if not more, songs um, that were in his company. How close to your heart is your love for me? As close as a way to the sea. Now, Barney, he ended up serving in the Army, was it, during World War II? Yeah, yeah. that one, I, I really don't know too much. He, he 
whereas doctors went in as and were given officer status right away um lawyers weren't which was interesting but he went in as a sergeant right away because he was an attorney and i don't think though that they used his attorney skills my recollection is that he was posted somewhere down south he never went overseas like my dad did go overseas and my mom did but uh, my uncle, um, I think, was like a supply sergeant at, uh, in Georgia, maybe at Fort Benning or something like that. Not not a very exciting career on right. that front. I guess you had free time, and on your free time, you can do whatever you want. Um, so he was able to uh, continue to manage uh, some of the artists that he had. He, he had an active music company before the war. So when the war started, uh, it was like, what do you do with your business once you've been drafted? I'm sure that a lot of people had that issue. And I guess fortunately for him, he could, by correspondence, and he did have a, a, a partner, uh, Dan Fox, I think was his name. And then uh, I, I guess through that, he was able to continue in the music business, even though the war was going on. Barney Young, of course, had a law background, and one, I guess, advantage he might have had, instead of having to hire a lawyer to do stuff for him, he himself could perform those duties. And you had sent me a little history of your uncle that somebody had done, and they mentioned his lawsuits, his many, many, many lawsuits that he had pending. Now, I know these days, a lot of times, you know, lawsuits never actually get to the trial stage. They're kind of just maybe threats, like, hey, you know, don't violate our rights, or hey, that's our property, that type of thing, and then they settle out of court, or, you know, the the problem goes away. Are you aware, like, how many his lawsuits actually, you know, went to trial or was it more of a just t- trying to protect like intellectual property it was a mix mixed bag on that certainly some did go to trial um, and some just went on for years of getting stays and uh, uh before any final or any judgment would come along probably one of the biggest issues that he was fighting for or about was um royalty payments um and he wasn't the only one who was involved in this uh, ascap which was the american society of composers authors and publishers um had formed you know so that um composers um and uh, performers could be paid royalties for their works when they were recorded um before that there just was no way when uh, let's say radio was playing people's songs. There was no consensus on how to uh, have any recompense for for the people who wrote the music. And ASCAP was formed, um, which then uh, people would join, or the, the composers, uh, musicians would join ASCAP, and ASCAP would then license the use of their songs to the different radio stations. And it was a monopoly, essentially, at the time. There's no other competition. 
the groups that owned most of the radio stations. It wasn't TV at the time, but it was NBC and uh, I guess RCA and CBS or NBC, ABC. And they uh, those networks became incensed that they felt they were paying too much to ASCAP. They formed a group called Broadcast Music Incorporated, BMI, so that they could stop playing ASCAP songs and start playing just songs that people who had signed up uh, for their music to BMI. Eventually, this, this, I guess, all led to lowering the fees that the radio stations had to pay. But how Barney was involved in this, I guess, he felt that he wasn't getting a fair shake either from ASCAP or when BMI uh, was developed or BMI. And the way they would try to analyze this was they would do surveys periodically to see how often different songs were paid and then the artists would get a royalty check depending upon the number of times that they were played um, and I guess everybody though would get a little bit of the pie if, if even perhaps if their song wasn't paid they'd get a small cut from these royalty fees that were paid to ASCAP and BMI and he felt that uh, either they weren't playing his songs enough or, or that there was cahoots going on between the networks and ASCAP, which at the time, uh, I guess, the networks bought into these companies and became major shareholders in them and um, also began to own songs like Sony today has bought up so many of the song uh, catalogs of different companies. They can create movies or TV shows and do all the music from within house. Um, so Barney felt he was getting cut out of some of this uh, and sued them to try to show that he wasn't getting his fair share. One of the things that was also interesting about that is that uh, African Americans or blacks, it was not always so easy to become a member of ASCAP or a member of BMI. If you were well-known, yes, but if you weren't, you, you couldn't even get in to get a piece of the action. So along with a fellow who had become fairly uh, well-known over the years, Perry Bradford, who was, I guess, noted for bringing blues into uh, white America, that it hadn't been something that the orchestras were playing much. And I think he's credited for bringing blues into the music world, making it more diverse in terms of the population that would listen to blues. And Perry Bradford and my uncle formed uh, what was called the Colored Performing Rights Society of America, where they were uh, going to sign up the black performers who were getting excluded at the time, because you have to remember, this was like the 1940s, 1950s, early 50s, um, and then go to the radio stations just like ASCAP and BMI and say, you want to play these songs, you know, pay us a licensing fee. You know, eventually I think that helped open up ASCAP and BMI to be more uh, willing to uh, let people of color in, into the societies. And I may be wrong on part of this, but this is my memory. I was very young at the time. Of course, I've tried to read on, on some of it. But I remember the discussions uh, when we'd be going out to dinner and driving in the car, hearing about these, uh, uh, what my uncle was doing and who he was doing it with and why he was doing it. Now people everywhere thought the world was very square till Columbus took a trip in Isabella's ship. 
Now Columbus shook the Indian's hand and made the big chief understand. Strike up the band when our country was born. When our country Gloria Parker, now she was a songwriter uh, in addition to being Barney's fiance. That's correct. Yes. What, what do you know of, of anything about their relationship and then their, uh, of course, their professional relationship? Because she was close and became his fiance, we certainly were out to dinner with her and him a lot. She's, you know, a very charming person, uh, very talented in many ways. She had uh, an all-female orchestra at one time, I think, uh, and toured the country with them. That was something that Barney, he managed her in addition to being uh, her sweetheart. He was, uh, um, he managed her career for a long period of time, up until, I guess, near the time of his death uh, but i don't i don't know when they first became uh or how they came to know each other that story i don't know okay. but she continued on after his death like performing and writing music is that correct yes she did uh she even um i think she had a uh, an unusual talent where she could play musical glasses um where the glasses are filled with different levels, they're like crystal goblets and they're filled with different levels of water so they have different tones. And she would play them wetting her fingers and play the glasses, rubbing her fingers around uh, the tops. Um, she could play two glasses at once. And I think uh, uh, Woody Allen in one of his films actually um, had her do a small role because of uh, in the film he hired unusual acts and this is one of the unusual acts that he hired but why seems majestic bungalow colony is a classy place and i need a classy act well that's why i want to show you this lady she is the yasha heifetz of this instrument she is really something you got to see this philly it's absolutely incredible just never took a lesson self-taught Next year, Philly, my hand to God, she's going to be at Carnegie Hall. But you Your know, uncle also managed artists that were not musicians. I was looking on the list, and there were some writers on there, and at least one magician, Harry Blackstone. Is that correct? Yes. I'm sure he wasn't the only manager Blackstone had at, at any time. Blackstone was such a big act. He probably had additional managers, but for... Uh, at least at one point and for a while he was uh, his manager, but also they did a record together that, well, he or Barney produced the record. It was called Party Magic. You know, they didn't have YouTube or anything back then. Uh, so uh, this was a way that you could bring some magic into the home. It also had music on the album, as I recall. So he would do an act, but then he would describe the trick and he might have described how these things are done, but that I don't recall. Well, here we go again with another sense-confounding trick and magic. Blackstone the Magician talking. And I'm going to show you a... I call it a humdinger. I would like all of you to take that deck of cards, right now that you're through playing canasta, and count out ten cards. Now I want you to think of a number from one to ten. And it was produced not only in... At first, it's 78, but that was successful enough that 
the 33s were just coming into into existence and that was also then produced in a 33 format. My wish is to have you always near. My wish is a home with you, my dear. I would do what you desire. Throw a log upon the fire. Hold your hand just like I planned and say that you are grand. This is more of a, I guess, an industry question, but obviously when the artist dies, they still keep getting royalty money coming in, and that generally goes to their next of kin. Is that correct? Yeah, and we work huge, but we work small as a music company there were i think at its most active period they may have had close to a thousand titles uh that were in the different catalogs for the company for denton haskins and life music and jim music were some of the companies that he that he owned the vast majority of these contracts were written as songs for hire so that uh, meant there was no responsibility to pay a royalty. That was true for also, um, I guess, uh, I think all of Unime's works. Most of these performers, they did, I don't think they trusted royalty checks coming in. ASCAP was, I guess, having suits and not paying people the, what they thought they should. That was, like I mentioned, one of the suits that he was having was with the uh, uh, these performance companies just weren't, he didn't think he was getting a fair share to distribute to himself or to the writers if they were under contract to receive a royalty. But most of the writers seemed to want to take the money and run. And they would write a song for hire or they would write it or they would perform a song for hire. I, I also saw things in the records where uh, the company files where uh, he would have the performer sign that they would go over to uh, DECA or one of the record companies for a recording on a certain date and do a recording of such and such a number for a fee. Um, so royalties were not a, a big part of what he had to take care of. Of course, there were some of the bigger artists uh, were more savvy, perhaps, and um, and they um, demanded a royalty uh situation for the recordings. Artie Shaw in particular was one of them. As far as I know, all of those individuals who we have to pay royalties to, even though I guess all of them are are deceased at this point, they were big enough or those songs were well enough uh, known that the family members well knew that they were getting money for them. And they've all made sure that we know where to send those checks even today. The checks are going out to the estates um, and being distributed. Well, that said, in one of the things that was in the archives that you let me look at, there was a letter that was, I guess, returned to sender that I believe it was your dad who had tried to. Oh yeah, was, uh, yeah. He was. He wanted to see if he could actually uh, get hold of some additional songs that uh, we owned or we owned only part of uh, for Unime. We own maybe half the songs. So he wanted to see if he could get the other half, uh, in particular things, or more popular numbers. And so after my uncle had died and my dad was trying to manage the companies on his own, he did write to 
either you and May's aunt or mother to the last address that we had on file to see if uh, he could uh, interest her in having some kind of contractual relationship where we would take over the uh, copyright for the song and then pay a royalty uh, or pay her a fee up front for the for just in general or uh, fee up front and then royalties going forward. Possibly the fee up front would be a little extra in, her, in their pocket because the royalties are pretty much set by whatever the original contract was. So you'd buy the contract from whoever, whichever company then might have it or get it assigned to you for when it, become, when it came up for renewal or just find out which company had it and whether they wanted to sell it to us uh, so that we'd have a bigger Unimate catalog at that point. So I think that's what that was about. It wasn't that we couldn't find part of the family to pay the royalties because my recollection is, at least for our Unimate songs, um, I think they were all, she had sold us the songs and it was just a contractual relationship. And not a soul in sight I'm walking by the river Cause I'm meeting someone there tonight You had mentioned to me off recording that as a child your family like took you along to some of these events uh, like maybe live music or other things that they were interested in. They didn't like leave you with a babysitter. Is that right? No, exactly. Um, you know, it was certainly different times in terms of, I guess, what uh, people considered was uh, politically correct to do with youngsters. So we did have a nanny who was a live-in nanny. Uh, so, of course, she wasn't there 24-7, uh, but so they didn't have her every night of the week to babysit if they were going out. But um, they certainly had that availability a lot of the time. But other times, they certainly had no compunction about taking us wherever they were going. They were very progressive since there was a lot of interaction between my uh, uncle and his brother, uh, my dad, uh, Uncle Barney and dad. Um, we were often going to listen to bands and uh, uh, artists that he was working with or to hear songs that uh, he was involved with. Um, one of the places I remember going a lot to was the Hotel Taft, which was in Midtown Manhattan, uh, to uh, the Grill Room. Vincent Lopez's orchestra was a staple for that particular location. And if you think that we don't hate it, then you're not. You're wrong! And uh, my parents would go, they'd take Cheryl and I, this would be in the evening, um, they'd have cocktails with friends. We would be have a booth, uh, sometimes Barney would be there, sometimes he wouldn't, but they'd dance. Cheryl and I would stay up and watch, uh, dance ourselves uh, too at times, because um, we'd had dancing lessons. But then as the evening wore on, Cheryl and I would camp out, go to sleep uh, in the booth uh, on the seats. And nobody thought twice about stuff like that at that time. Of course, the grill room was serving alcohol, but it was a restaurant. But it was a, also like a nightclub with this constant, uh, you know, I guess most nights of the week they had entertainment. So that was one thing. And then another thing, when we would go on family trips, uh, one thing that sticks out in my head, we were on a cruise one year, and I must have been, you know, maybe eight, something like that, uh, years old. This is in the 
1950s, or very early 1960s, late 1950s, and we were visiting Haiti, and they wanted to take in a, a voodoo show that was at night. Um, and the, the cruise ships did have uh, the ability to babysit the kids as well, but you know, my parents were determined that we would have an education, and so they took Cheryl and I along. Um, this, uh voodoo show uh, where there was a lot of dancing music drums there also were these rites i guess going on because voodoo is a religion they had a chicken that they brought out and they uh, swung this chicken around and they ripped the head off of the chicken at some point and leaned their head back and drank the blood out of the chicken (laughs) then, then they ripped its feathers off and put it in some kind of a, a bowl-like device, poured some alcohol over it and lit it a fire, and then took it off the stage. Well, actually, it was, this was all outdoors, so it wasn't really a stage. It was, it was uh, We were sitting in, in seats around a dirt arena. I think my mother was a little concerned at that point as to what <laughs> Cheryl and I might be thinking, but she, she leaned over to me and into my ear. She said, don't worry, Charlie they'll be eating that for dinner later. (laughs) That was her way of making it all all right. I guess since she had grown up in Arkansas uh, and I knew stories of how they raised chickens and my grandmother would chop the chicken's head off and my mother would tell me how the chicken would run around the yard sometimes after they chopped the head off. So we were well aware of uh, what happens with uh, poultry and uh, the circle of life. Yes. <laughs> when you're around in your late 60s, early 70s, you retire. And like you said earlier, you decided to kind of get around to looking through some of the stuff that your uncle had left after he passed away. And this was what year, roughly? 1969. And you start looking at this stuff about when? Well... Much, much later. I had just graduated high school in 1968, and so was in my first year of college at that time. So basically, my uncle had not married, had no children. Uh, So my father, who had worked closely with him over the years with the companies, inherited the companies. Uh, My father was an ophthalmologist, uh, so I followed in his footsteps. He was busy practicing ophthalmology at the time. So what he did was basically he tried to consolidate the companies. My uncle maybe had 20 companies at the time, and he put them into two or three companies to make it easier to manage, boxed everything up, put it in storage, and went back to work as an ophthalmologist. (laughs) And then uh, basically through ASCAP and BMI, he would get royalty checks, and he would actually himself sit at home and sometimes with the help of one of his secretaries, they would look, he had a card file he had created that had the, um, uh, which songs, uh, what share was to be divided up to which authors and what their addresses were. And he would write out the checks, send them out. And sometimes when I came home for vacation, I would help him with that for these were quarterly that you'd send out these checks. So in that building, wherever he worked out of, you could get your eyes checked and also uh, get a song published, possibly? Well, he, he actually he, he did sign a couple of contracts uh-huh. uh, over the years, but generally where he was practicing was downtown by Wall Street and was not in the same music industry business district at all, uh, which was uh, you know where you know, the play 
the theater district mm -hmm. for, for Manhattan was where all the music companies were at the time. Um, so this was the end of the island, the other end of the island. I'd say, no, you only got your eyes checked when you went to see <laughs> okay. it. So you said you eventually, you and your sister inherited this stuff and uh, after your dad passed, right? Right. Sort of the same situation at the start. My, my sister was still working, so was I. Uh, so we left those boxes basically in storage. Mm -hmm. uh, she looked around and found a... Um, manager, uh, an attorney uh, who was in the music business in L.A., let her work out any contracts for if anybody looked at the material and wanted to use it for a film or a commercial or, or just to collect the royalties. Mm -hmm. uh, she would make sure that those were being collected and take her percentage, and, yeah. uh, but do all the contract writing for us. And that can, persisted until... Um, the time that I retired, which was at this point, uh, we're looking about um, six years ago now. Right. And I said, well, you know, those boxes, hmm, they haven't been opened in 50 years or more now. Wonder what's in them. <laughs> and uh, I decided I'd start going through it and see if there was something there to occupy my time aside from my you know, other interests now that I'd stopped ophthalmology. Um, and they were quite an interesting trove of history that uh, I uncovered. Oh, so long, shorty. I'm going to be kind of blue. What's a gal like me to do without a pal like you? To give an example of some of the stuff that you all owned that was still generating some revenue, you had mentioned on the soundtrack to Dirty Dancing 2, Havana Nights, you all had a song. Uh, yes, um... Chico Farrell had written a song uh, which was called Holiday Mambo, which had a decidedly uh, Cuban-Spanish beat to it. They took that number, remixed it, and renamed it Do You Only Want to Dance? and had Maya perform it. You'll see clearly when the song comes to the stop. I'll be the one blowing kisses from the top. So baby, stop surrounding. I've got my love That is probably one of our best numbers at, at this point. And it's amazing taking one of these older version songs, what you can do with it, and make it contemporary again. And that Avenger, you should surrender. When you're looking through this stuff, I guess the way I remember you telling me this was that you started to see this name come up a lot, Yuna Carlisle. And you said you remember when your uncle was alive that he would talk about her to y'all a lot. So what do you remember about what he said? Yeah, well, you know, Yuna died... When I was still just a very uh, young person, I was maybe five, five years old. So I don't really have any concrete memory of her. You know, I have a vague recollection that perhaps I might have met her kind of stuff and what she looked like. And certainly I've seen photos of her today, which is blended into it. But um, uh, what... What he related you know, was that basically he 
had formed, a, a, I would say, a bit of a paternal relationship with her, looked after her like he did many and many other people in the business had to do the same thing. They would look after uh, some of their stars almost like second children or grandchildren. That they, um, the industry, just like it does today, destroys people. Mm-hmm. Um, that there is a lot of influence of drugs and alcohol and just the pressure of producing and the late nights and a lot of travel. And um, the very young people that start off in this and who are popular. She was uh, pretty young herself still and back, I guess, in the 1930s when they first met. Um, And she was unhappy with the manager who she had. And... um, I don't know, unfortunately, how they were introduced, but she came to meet Barney, and I, I guess he seemed to always be giving her the fair shake or a good deal as to why she stayed with him for 20 years. I think that also was unusual. A lot of people fly around to, or were flighty and would go from manager to manager. I think because of the nature of the business, it just was... Uh, uh, dog eat dog and they were always looking for the best deal um, and I think she felt that she always was getting a good deal but not only with Barney um, she, she, the letters that I found as when I was going through these boxes indicated that she had developed a relationship with the family she would frequently ask about my grandmother and about my dad and my dad uh, helped her she had many physical problems um, health issues Uh, and helped her with some of those while she was in New York, um, but also kept in contact with her doctors in Ohio. Whose is it now many, many years ago when I attended school? The teacher made me memorize a good old-fashioned rule. So at some point, I guess you start listening to her music and... What are your initial thoughts? Some of it was really good. Hmm. Uh, you know, I guess uh, the the uh, last songs that she recorded were through my uncle, ones that he actually did, um, not only had the uh, publishing rights to, but had the recording rights for and did the record pressing, hiring, I think, Columbia at the time, which is now part of Sony, all these things get bought up over the years mm-hmm. uh, but um, what what I found interesting was that her mood in the music would change um, and I tried to go back over the correspondence to, and the time that these songs were also recorded and see whether she, whether she was ill at the time that some of these songs show that sound very uh, melancholy and others are very lively, and I think it correlates with what she was going through personally in her life. Another thing, though, that impressed me with is how much she changed over time in terms of the, her own sound, what she was producing. That uh, I think if if she had survived, um, listening 
taking her original song that made her famous and then looking at the last song she wrote in the 1950s, she really transitioned with music and became somewhat of, you know, I saw her coming into the pop artist at the time with the last number she wrote. So I think she would have in many ways been just as known today as Billie Holiday or Ella Fitzgerald, her con which who were contemporaries of her, had she just survived. There was stillness in the night When you filled me with delight And now the memory I find it haunting me Like the rhythm in the breeze When I you obviously have a treasure trove of information particular to her. You told me when you started to research outside of that, that you started to have some problems. Yeah, there just wasn't much out there about her. You know, I became fascinated with this one artist who I knew my family had a personal connection with. And I became um, interested in her music, actually, you know, really liked her music. And I thought, well... Uh, I should do something to try to bring this woman back. And I thought, I'll create a podcast or maybe a YouTube about her, see if I can get more interest going. To research the material for that, to add to what I had in my own Denton and Haskins company files, um, I wrote to several institutions around the country that were known for jazz collections, and I found that they had next to nothing. This includes, like... Like the, the museum in New Orleans and in New York City, Smithsonian, I guess. Right. All well, all three of those, yeah. uh, and I think there's also there was a jazz museum in Kansas City as well, and so I contacted all those and uh, found that you know maybe they had a recording here or had a couple of newspaper articles, but mm -hmm. uh, beyond that, I was kind of left. Uh, adrift, even at, and also I'll say at the time on the internet, there was very little available to her. What's been amazing and perhaps in part, I'd like to think because of my interest and in what I did, helped uh, initiate a lot of uh, new material has popped up on the internet today. Um, and it's also helped develop, uh, I guess, a circle of people who uh, do have an interest in Unimate, like meeting yourself, right. uh, but also meeting um, people at the Smithsonian who now are very aware of her and want to include her and actually have included her in uh, one of the, uh, in their um, African American History Museum at the Mall, have included her in their music uh, portion of the building. Uh, there is uh, an exhibit that mentions Unimate. You got to watch your step. A wrong decision often hurts your head. And even when you spend a dime, you gotta take your time. When I rack my brains to figure out why she isn't remembered more so, you know, I came up with a couple of theories and. One of them, I think, is that people like uh, Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday, you've, obviously they, they had a longer recording career, but also the, the companies that own the material are, are pretty huge and they're still promoting them. Like you, you, They must be pushing it, their material to be in movies or that you get reissues almost on a regular basis. And, of course, Una May wasn't really with one. She was with your uncle 
as a publisher, but she was with different record companies. It seemed like almost every other year that a different company was recording her. Do you think that might have been part of the problem? Why there's not one gatekeeper, so to speak, of her I, legacy? Yeah, you know, I think that's part of it. I do think, uh, of course, Billie Holiday didn't survive, I guess, as, as long as Ella did. Ella, uh, you know, made it through her entire life and was able to keep performing. Right. So I think that helped. Um, but being owned by the majors, like Sony, does help that uh, the industry, if you can do one-stop shopping to sign your contract and put it in um, whatever you're creating as new material, that's easier. So why go to the little shops that are still out there? There's still interest, I'll say, in buying these the smaller companies, and, and we're periodically somebody comes along who makes an offer, but it's it's just so far been too much fun. Since you all own some of Unime's songs, the publishing of it, do you every once in a while get requests uh, to use the material, or or does anybody show any yeah, interest? Not not for Unime. I mean, we do get royalties uh, because these some of these things are they're on the streaming platforms like Spotify or Amazon today. Um, so you uh, uh, the royalties will still come in because people have an interest in jazz and they do. I think find her music either because they have looked her up or it just pops up on cycles as they look for new material without you baby i'd be so blue if you should leave me what could i do i'd look into space all i'd see is your face i'd dream away dream of you night and day if anybody out there is either doing research or they want to use a Unime song or, or anything for that matter how do folks get a hold of you well they can either uh, they, basically through the internet there's a website for the company Denton D as in David E-N-T-O-N and Haskins H-A-S-K-I-N-S uh, dot com or through the website musicmagicandmore.com. Both of them will take you to the page that has the Denton Haskins company on it, and the website has a lot of the music samples. You can listen to some of them. Um, it lists all the artists that are still in, in our catalog. Those episodes regarding Unime Carlisle, again, are in the corner back by the woodpile, numbers 273 and 274. Also, check out Charlie Young's podcast on YouTube called Unheard of Jazz, one of which also discusses Unime and Barney's stories. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye. Without you, baby, I'd be so blue If you should leave me, what could I do? I'd look into space, all I'd see is your face I'd